From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado lawmakers have taken a major step towards helping survivors of domestic violence feel safer and better supported while navigating the legal process. It's an issue close to the heart of the legislator who co-sponsored the bill. As a survivor, I understand a lot of the challenges and difficulty when you're going through the process. At times, you feel like you're re-victimized again. We'll take a closer look at that bill now headed to the Senate. Then, corruption, organized crime, and a rise of the Ku Klux Klan plagued Denver in the 1920s. A new page-turner profiles the man who was unstoppable in the pursuit of justice. Plus, we take you three stories underground to explore what's inside the archives of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. State senators will take up a bill aimed at helping people who've experienced domestic violence and similar crimes feel safer and better supported while going through the legal process. It has already passed the House, and tomorrow it heads to a Senate Judiciary Committee. House Majority Leader Monica Duran of Wheat Ridge not only co-sponsored the bill, she says it's extra personal because she is a domestic violence survivor herself. Duran told me the bill is about assembling a task force of stakeholders who would advise how to better center the needs of survivors here in Colorado and to help keep them from being re-traumatized. Thank you for the opportunity. As a survivor, I understand a lot of the challenges and difficulty when you're going through the process, right? When you're going Mm -hmm. through um, trying to get, whether that be a protection order, whatever that might be, um, just how difficult and how at times you feel like you're re-victimized again when you go to court. And Mm. from my experience and talking to different survivors through the years and with the work that I do here at the legislature, um, whether that be running House Bill 1255, which was requiring those who had a protection order against them to relinquish their firearms, or whether Mm. that is, you know, funding, right, Mm -hmm. for um, crime victims, including domestic violence, sexual assault. I hear over and over again, how survivors feel like when they're going through the process, through the court process, they feel that there is a lack of uh, not just sensitivity, but knowledge when it comes to those who have been through domestic violence, especially if they are in court. One story I continuously hear is the fact that when we have to go to court, whether that is for that protection order or whatever it is, there seems to be a disconnect between the judge court staff um, when we are there. And because it's very traumatizing as a survivor, when you've been physically, emotionally, and mentally abused and your offender is there, it's a form of intimidation and fear. And there is a lack of knowledge on the other end. And that's what this task force and my hope is 
with this task force is to be able to draw attention to that and make change, transformational change. And just to add to this bill has bipartisan support. My co-prime on this is Representative Gabe Evans, who was in law enforcement and really dealt with a lot of these cases too. So through those conversations, we thought, you know what, I think the best approach to try to figure out a solution moving forward on how victims, when they go to court, aren't feeling like they're being re-victimized is let's create a task force. A task force that consists of, and I think we're at 25 right now on this task force, different advocates, law enforcement, retired judges, um, different organizations, survivors, most importantly. Let's create a task force with all of these different voices so that over several months they can come together and put together a plan as to how can we better train judges in courts and make that process better, right? There's always room for improvement. So for me, and I think for many of us and for our our communities and our advocates who who fight for this every day, this would really be transformational to really kind of bring this full circle, in other words, and full circle for me and what I went through in my challenges and struggles. Mm. So basically you're putting together all these stakeholders and how will this kind of operate? Will it be some type of monthly or quarterly meetings? Will it just be, hey, we just need your suggestions and then someone's going to sift through that and make the recommendations? Kind of what, what, how was the process going to be more like? Yeah, actually, it'll be pretty structured. They'll have so many meetings that they will, you know, say, say our bill gets passed, the governor signs it, uh, the task force would, would start taking place in July and they mm-hmm. would have to report back by, I think it's October, November. So -hmm. they would have to set up uh, monthly meetings, if not two or three, right, to come together Mm -hmm. and to kind of talk through all the different criteria and things we want them to address. Um, You know, there's a child advocate on here also when we talk about child abuse. So they would have to come together, really kind of figure out, okay, what's the best path forward and bring that to us, bring that to to me so that I can look at it and say, this is fantastic. We've had input from retired judges, law enforcement, you know, obviously, like I said, survivors, confidential advocate, because we want to make sure that we are, we're listening to, you know, district attorneys, right? We'll be on here. Family law attorney would be on here. So it's a great group of leaders within our community that deal with these uh, issues every day and getting that feedback and input from them, I think will really kind of help carve out legislation for us to run next year. We've listed the criteria of who we want represented on this task force, but haven't appointed uh, the folks per se. I wanted Mm. to make sure that we had a judge from the rural counties, right? Because in rural counties, those issues and challenges are different Mm, um, than here in Denver. So their struggles um, and and their needs are different than what we have here. So I want to make sure that the voices from our rural communities are heard. Um, Also, a district court judge, I think, with experience in domestic violence, it's important to have. So I've kind of laid out the list of 25 different types of folks that should be on this task force. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we'll start appointing once we get the bill out of the House and onto the Senate and signed by the governor, then we can start narrowing that down as to who from, you know, which retired judge will serve on here. A member of the court staff will be on here. Then we can get more technical. 
Mm-hmm. What um what efforts will be made in terms of racial diversity, age diversity, and also things like the LGBTQ community? You know, you know those different dynamics. Um, are there any efforts in that in those areas? Absolutely. Yep. A matter of fact, uh, some of that came up when we were in committee hearing in the House, and from that feedback, I ran an amendment um, on the floor, making sure that we have that diversity. Once those recommendations are are brought back, then I would sit down and kind of go through all that information myself and Representative Evans will go through their recommendations. And then from there, we can start forming our legislation for next session. Okay. So would that be more like legislation about implementation? Implementation, you know, it's hard to say because I don't know what those recommendations are going to be. It would be trying to figure out the best path forward. and. you know, just figuring out the best way to implement it. What are their suggestions? How are they, uh, how are they suggesting we address judicial training? Um, what does that look like? So there's going to be a lot of work that's going to take place once we get this information back. Um, so I'm excited to see what that is. I'm actually really just excited that we're going to have this task force and we're ha- actually having the conversation mm-hmm. because for years and years, there is such a stigma when somebody has been through domestic violence and has come out the other end that it's really hard to have open conversations. And what this is going to be is open conversations of survivors who have gone through all of the processes from a attorney to court, to family court, to everything like I went through really kind of listening to each other, right? That's the most important thing is let's listen to each other. Thank you for sharing the details of this legislation, but also for sharing your personal story, because I don't ever want to underestimate how difficult that may be. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share, to say we hear you and we're doing everything we can in the state of Colorado to make sure that that happens. Thank you. Thank you. Monica Duran is the House Majority Leader in the state legislature. She's the sponsor of House Bill 231108, a bipartisan bill that seeks to assemble a task force to help survivors of domestic violence and similar crimes feel better supported through the legal process. The bill goes to a state Senate Judiciary Committee tomorrow. Colorado hit what some warned would be a hunger cliff last month. That's when expanded benefits ended for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, previously known as food stamps. More than a half million Coloradans received these benefits, and by some estimates, most people got an average of $90 less for food in March than in previous months during the pandemic. We checked in at a food bank on the western slope to see how it's affecting demand. It's perfect, too, because we just ran out of our eggs this morning. And <laughs> well, you're going to get eggs. <laughs> That's Cheyenne Wilder and Jackie Feaster. Wilder is in line on a busy Wednesday morning at the Clifton Christian Church Food Bank. Her kids are settled behind her in the back seat. And like many, she has seen a huge cut in her SNAP benefits in March. We had a big chunk of money for there for a while, actually. It was almost $1,000 a month for our food stamps. And then they cut it to two ninety, And now I'm not even sure if we're going to be getting it. 
The reduction in SNAP benefits affects all of Colorado, but Mesa County had problems well before the cuts. An overwhelmed health department was struggling last year to keep up with applications for benefits, racking up a three-month backlog. County officials say they've whittled away at that and hope to be caught up a month from now. For parents like Wilder, though, the bureaucracy has been extra tough. I tried calling everybody to kind of get a feel of what might happen next with my food stamps. It's kind of scary not knowing what might happen. Jackie Feaster is the food bank's executive director. She tells us need is up and that in the past month they're seeing around 50 more households seeking help. She says her counterparts around the region are experiencing similar increases. I am in contact with um, a farmer's market up in the Delta Hotchkiss area and the lady sells eggs and she said that she always used to get SNAP benefit recipients to get eggs from her f- farm stand and she says she has not had that now since the SNAP benefits have canceled or lowered due to the decrease. Colorado is sending an extra 14 million dollars to help support food banks in light of these federal cuts to SNAP benefits. Feaster said it's not just increased need, she's also worried about increased costs. Her guess is the surge in demand has been driven evenly between inflation and benefit reductions, wreaking havoc on her food bank. Just to give you an idea of food costs, um, five years ago this program, which we didn't have near the numbers, my food cost was only $30,000 with donations and all those things. Last year, my food cost was $120,000. And again, I've already spent $60,000 and I'll need to buy food again. Feaster says donations and grant opportunities have also slowed. With less pandemic assistance available, the Clifton Christian Church Food Bank is having to look elsewhere to meet the growing need. Feaster is confident that they will secure the needed support. We're just going to keep working hard and loving on people. That's what we do here. We um, have a huge responsibility to be kind and to love on people because we all are going through things. Jackie Feaster is executive director of the Clifton Christian Church Food Bank. We also heard from SNAP recipient Cheyenne Wilder about the impact reduced benefits are having now that the federal government has ended extended help that was available through the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. During the Ice Age, Colorado was covered by a massive frozen sheet. That ice, slowly moving, carved much of the state's landscape. There are still a few remnants of that ice left in Colorado as glaciers. And near the Continental Divide in Clear Creek County, St. Mary's Glacier seems to be one of them. It is one of Colorado's top hiking destinations, offering a stunning view and a year-round sledding opportunity. But a glacier is a flowing river of ice, and St. Mary's, in its solid form, is immobile, making it a semi-permanent snowfield instead. Still, in another way, St. Mary's is moving downhill, as meltwater. In recent decades, there has been more melting and less new snowfall on Colorado's ancient ice, a phenomenon that photographs and satellites confirm across the globe, putting in doubt future generations' summer sledding on St. Mary's Glacier. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from National Jewish Health.
Solving the Colorado River crisis will take money and compromise. Well, so says a bipartisan group of senators touring the river who are all from states that depend on its water. Colorado's Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper joined Wyoming's Cynthia Loomis in Palisade Monday. Money can't solve everything. I think that it can help. And, but what can really make a difference here is a spirit of collaboration that I've seen in the Senate and among the leaders of the, uh, of the various states and the tribes with their water commissioners working together. We have to find a way to make a settlement now, I think, that will last us for 100 years. And that's not just going to be about money. It's also going to be about collaboration. A torrent of money is flowing towards water projects. That funding comes from a pair of spending bills passed in recent years. Senator Bennett says the federal support might not be there if it weren't for Western wildfires growing large enough to impact the nation's capital. Tragically, you know, I think it took the smoke getting to Washington and to New York City last year, two years ago, that were California fires before people there started to realize some of what we have been talking about, and that's why you're seeing, it's not accidental, $10 billion, you know, between the infrastructure bill and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act for forestry, $20 billion for conservation, another $4 billion to deal with the, the Colorado River Basin it's, itself, because people, I think, are understanding in ways that maybe they didn't before that the future of the American West is at stake, and therefore the future of our country is at stake. The seven states that rely on Colorado River water still need to give, still need to agree on massive usage cuts. If they don't, the federal government may do it for them. So far, California has refused to sign on. The senators are hopeful that their spirit of cooperation might spill over into the basin state negotiations. If not, Senator Hickenlooper says the issue could grow even more complex. If we end up with a six-state solution and and California on the outside, uh, we will go into litigation. Uh, The litigation will rapidly end up at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't have a very thick level of experience in water law. Uh, and there is genuine general consensus that the original compact was made on faulty science. You know, it's 100 years old. So there's a lot of unknowns there. Senators John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett of Colorado. They stopped on the Western Slope Monday as part of a tour of the Colorado River and the areas that depend on it. Long before Colorado was a state, it was, a home, it was home to indigenous people. Their history here prompted a question through Colorado Wonders. Here's CPR's John Daly. That question, what Native American tribes lived in the area now known as Denver? It came to us from Darlene Graham, a retired teacher. She remembers learning about the Ute tribe, but not much more. I think it's fifth grade where they study Native Americans in, their, in this area. It's just a fascinating subject, and I think it's sometimes it's kind of sort of forgotten. Ernest House Jr. would agree we met downtown. We're sitting here at the, uh, on the banks of the confluence in downtown Denver. House is a member of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe from southwestern Colorado. He's a former head of the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs. I go back in time and think about how our tribal nations had also utilized this area. Water is so important. Water was the lifeblood 
helping sustain people here for 12,000 years or more. The Utes and other tribes lived on the mountainside of the South Platte, and House says, on the other side... I often think about the Plains tribes, those tribes that were moving with buffalo. They were utilizing horse, large horse tribes like the Comanche, like the Sioux Nations, Cheyenne, Rapo, and so on. They traveled around this region and beyond. There was an I-25 corridor long before any type of concrete was laid down. Our tribal nations have always also been here. At least 48 other nations occupied this land in the last 500 years. Then waves of Euro-American explorers, trappers, traders, and eventually settlers pushed in, often violently. Tribes, House says, were forcibly removed by treaty or by gunpoint from what we call the state of Colorado over the last 150 to 200 years. History Colorado has been grappling with this complicated story. I met Sam Bach there. You know, here we are at the entrance of the exhibit. He's the lead exhibit developer for History Colorado, where they recently opened a new exhibit on the Sand Creek Massacre, the deadliest day in Colorado history. And you can't understand the, the creation of Colorado without understanding both the Sand Creek Massacre and the Gold Rush. They're all connected. Growing settlement on the land took off with the Gold Rush. Then, in the 1860s, the U.S. used Colorado gold to pay for the Civil War. The people coming to mine that gold were hostile to the indigenous peoples who had been living here for hundreds of years. To protect Denver and the mines, the U.S. sent troops. In 1864, the U.S. Army attacked a camp of mostly women, children, and elders on Big Sandy Creek in southeastern Colorado. The soldiers murdered more than 230 peaceful Cheyenne and Arapaho people. It's really one of the most important moments in Colorado history. It also set the stage for more death and devastation, Bach says. These people were pushed very far away from their homelands. They were pushed into residential boarding schools where their children, against their will, were taken and oftentimes, sadly, had their language and culture literally beaten from them. Momentum is building to revisit the past with an eye towards restoration and reconciliation. In February, hundreds gathered at the Denver Indian Center. That's a place for the American Indian and Alaska Native community, which makes up roughly 2% of Colorado's population. Rick Williams was there. He's executive director of a nonprofit called People of the Sacred Land. I think that we need to be able to tell our own story. One way that's happening is through Denver's Landmark Preservation Team and Office of Storytelling. It's developing a written study and a documentary. Community members are telling their stories. Williams says history also requires a hard, often painful look at how Colorado was formed. You only need to ask yourself one question. Why are there no Indian reservations on the Front Range or in the eastern plains of Colorado? And it's a sad story. Williams hopes in better remembering, chronicling, and understanding his history, the people living in the land now known as Colorado can seek truth and chart a better future. Long overdue? 150 years. That's a long time. Yes, it is. He says he's glad those conversations are now unfolding. I'm John Daly, CPR News. What do you wonder about? Send us your questions at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 
The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. In the 1920s, Denver was a city coming into its own. The economy was booming and it was known as a place of opportunity. But behind that vibrancy was lots of organized crime and corruption at the highest levels. The Ku Klux Klan also emerged during this time in the 20s, accompanied by growing anti-immigrant sentiment. It's all covered in a new book called Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption, and the Klan, and tells the story of a man named Philip Van Size, who was determined to uphold the law. Author Alan Prendergast joins CPR's Andrea Dukakis, now in the studio. Alan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Can you set the scene for us? Describe why 1920s Denver seemed to be humming along as a city and prospering, at least from the outside. Well, at the time, I mean, Denver was the largest city between Kansas City and San Francisco, and it had certain cosmopolitan pretensions as it sort of lost some of the rough edges of being a frontier town. Um, There were a lot of new jobs. There were a lot of people coming to the state. Um, there was a lot for tourists. I mean, they had this great downtown with electric streetcars and big movie palaces and this fabulous park system, people coming to take picnics and tours of the mountains. Uh, but beneath all that, there was a lot of other issues that really, I mean, I think are surprising to people who don't know the history. Uh, in the summer of 1920, there was a violent streetcar strike, uh, and it was so violent that Denver ended up under martial law for a little while. Mm. There was a lot of crime and some of it associated with prohibition, which had hit Denver and Colorado earlier than many other states. And I think there was a lot of dissatisfaction or at least restlessness, fears that people were being left behind. I mean, not everyone was sharing in that prosperity equally. So there was a lot that was going on. And there was an active and very well-organized group of mobsters. How did they get rich? Well, there were several things going on. I mean, of course, there's prohibition. There was prostitution, gambling. There was a lot of police fixing and graft, basically. But the thing that was most interesting about Denver at that point, is, is, is at least in the crime world, was that it was the place that the major con artists in the country would come every summer to fleece rich tourists with the elaborate big con schemes, things like you would see in the movie The Sting, where several people are involved. It's a very elaborate con takes place over weeks, and really extracts hundreds of thousands of dollars from people. Mm. They didn't seem to have a hard time finding people to swindle with promises of fast money in the stock market. What made that time so ripe for ripping people off? Well, keep in mind, this is the the go-go 1920s, right? I mean, before the stock market crashed, there was a lot of frantic speculation in the market. There were all sorts of weird scams and schemes being worked because people weren't that sophisticated about stocks. 
the number of Americans investing in stocks. The middle class really discovered the stock market in the early part of the 20th century and started investing in it, uh, which had always been something that you know the Rockefellers did or something like that. But there was suddenly this sort of frantic sense, we can all get a piece of this pie, which we keep reading about all these big plungers and massive fortunes being made overnight. So it, it sort of played into people's greed or at least their expectations that somehow they could miraculously uh, you know, double their money overnight in the stock market. At the same time, Philip, Philip Van Size became district attorney, and he was just relentless in his determination to take down the mob. Um, some people may be familiar with the name Van Size. Denver's Justice Center complex bears his name, uh, along with John Simonet, who headed up the Denver Department of Corrections. Tell us a little bit about Van Size's early years. Really interesting guy. He was born in Deadwood. His father was a very uh, well-known attorney there and moved to Denver when Philip was a teenager. Um, So he went to East High School. He went to the University of Colorado. He went to law school following in his father's footsteps. But he also was a very active guy. Uh, he, He was in the Colorado National Guard at the time of the Ludlow Massacre, and he investigated other guardsmen who were involved in that conflict with the coal mine in, in, in southern Colorado. Um, so he had this formative experience of, you know, watching how to try to blow the whistle on wrongdoing. I think, I think that was a major experience in his life. He then went on to World War I. He was a war hero and worked in military intelligence, which helped to influence how he decided to approach tackling these con men once he discovered this ring was working out of Denver with the police's uh, complicity. How did he convince voters that he should be Denver's district attorney? He used his war record to some degree, called himself a fighting man for a fighting job. And really, I think there was a perception in Denver that the fix was in. I mean, people could see that crimes were going unpunished. They could see that this current district attorney, the guy he replaced, was not much interested in pursuing uh, criminals. And Van Size was coming in and saying, hey, we've got to do some basic things here. It was a very simple message, but it was, I'm going to clean up the streets. And you have some pretty seedy characters in your book, powerful mobsters. The head of it all was this man named Lou Blonger, who was Van Size's nemesis. He was connected to top elected officials in the city, and he had Denver police officers on his payroll. How was he able to gain so much power? Well, this was something that had happened over a period of years. Blonger actually is a real Denver institution. He went back to the 1880s, 1890s in Denver. And he was then just another one of these guys who ran crooked gambling halls and saloons and things like that. But he, over time, learned how to distance himself from the direct criminal activity at the same time taking payoffs and making sure if anybody operated in town, that they had to go through him, and they would pay him a cut, and he would keep the police uh, off them. So he had an enormous amount of power, and he had enormous influence with politicians, and even tried to corrupt Van Size before he was elected. He offered him a huge campaign donation, wink, wink, right. that, that was just so far out of line that Van Size realized, this guy is protecting something. What's he doing? I found it interesting that Van Size was among the first to employ this police tactic that we all know about today, um, electronic surveillance. He had this device that bugged the office of Lou Blonger, which is how he got much of his information. It was obviously very different from what it is today. How did it work? 
Yeah, this is this is sort of the dawn of the age of surveillance. Um, there were these devices that, of course, had been developed mainly for business use, like the dictaphone, right? Um, but this was something called a dictograph, which was much simpler. It was basically a very sensitive microphone hooked up to a wire, which would then lead to a stenographer or somebody on headphones. And you could, the, the device was small enough to be planted somewhere. At the same time, the batteries for it weighed like 50 pounds. So he had to be a little ingenious in, in using this. And it didn't work perfectly, but it did give him great intelligence about what the mob was doing all the time that he was investigating them. I think they actually put it in the ceiling of Blanger's Yeah, it was, actually, it was actually hidden in the cup of a chandelier. And Blanger at some point thought his phone was tapped. They, they looked behind paintings. They looked under desks. They never found the bug. It continued to operate right up to the last day of the trial against these guys. Most of the people who came to Denver and were swindled were so embarrassed that they went along with it and were duped that they never reported it to police. But this one man, I found this interesting, Frank Norfleet, um, was determined to bring the mob down with him. What happened to him that made him so determined to go after Lou Blonger and the mob? Norfleet is a terrific character. He was a Texas rancher, not very sophisticated. He got taken by the group in Dallas for about $50,000, which was everything he had and then some. And the idea is, yes, you're right. They're, they're supposed to just go skulk away. Some of the people committed suicide who had been um, right. taken by this gang. He did exactly the opposite. He became known as the boomerang sucker because he didn't mind going out and saying, yes, I've been fleeced. This is the, who did it. This is what these guys look like. I'm trying to find them. He went on a three-year manhunt for these guys and happened to land in Denver right around the time Van Size was investigating this same group. And Van Size realized, to keep the investigation safe in part, that he should use Norfleet as an undercover agent. And he does a magnificent job exacting his own revenge on these guys. And he actually begins arresting them, uh, held them in a church until they went on trial. What became of them? That was interesting, too, because simply there was no way to be safe about these guys once they were arrested unless you created your own jail because the jail in Denver couldn't be trusted. Um, and he took, got them all to trial, uh, at least the ones that didn't face crimes in other jurisdictions that he sent earlier. So he, he had a, there was a huge trial. It was the longest, costliest trial in Denver history, and it led to the conviction of all 20 of the people he put on, on trial. Van Size's next target was the Ku Klux Klan. How did that group rise to power in Denver at the time? The Klan in the 20s was very different than what we think about when we think Ku Klux Klan and we think about the Civil War and the Knight Riders and Reconstruction and all of that. This was a sort of quasi-mainstream political movement, particularly in Colorado. Uh, these are guys who started out as a secret fraternal society. They were promising, basically, we're going to protect America for people who are 100% American. And by that, they really meant white, native-born Protestants. But it was a very adaptable message. I mean, in places like Colorado, where there was not a large black population, they really focused, their tar they targeted Catholics, Jews, immigrants, uh, whoever would make a convenient scapegoat, basically. And that was that was partly their appeal was that they could they, they were promising all sorts of things about cleaning up the town themselves. And the group's following grew to the point that thousands were attending their events. Many of the city's top leaders threw their support behind the Klan. Some tried to keep an arm's length from the group. How much power did it the Klan have in politics specifically at the time? 
by the mid-1920s, this happened very fast, between about 1922 and 1925. By 1925, they had, they had carried the 24 elections. They, they, they were in control of the Republican Party. They had the governorship. They had the state legislature. Uh, both U.S. senators were backed by the Klan. Um, so they had tremendous power. Um, they were not themselves with one party, but they were telling their members, whether they were Democrats or Republicans, to vote for whoever the right Klan candidate was. And Colorado really became one of the top strongholds of the Klan in the 1920s. We hear a lot about former Mayor Ben Stapleton and his connections to the Klan in the 1920s. The old Denver airport was named after him, and the development that replaced it kept his name until recently when the name was changed. Um, There was a lot of controversy over it. How closely allied was Stapleton to the Klan? Initially, Stapleton was this guy who came out of nowhere. He was like this lesser-known bureaucrat running for mayor. And he, most people didn't realize that he was a Klansman at that point and that he had the Klan's backing, which is probably what made the difference in the 1923 election. This is, I guess, a cautionary tale about vetting your mayoral candidates, right? Um, but he was backed by the Klan then. There was an attempt to recall him in 24. The Klan backed him then. He, he did show up at Klan meetings, and, and we have Van Sy's spy reports to tell us that he basically pledged his support to the Klan. But after 25, he began to distance himself from them. He went on to three more terms as mayor, and he was no longer closely affiliated with the Klan at that point. How much of an impact did Van Sy's have on the Klan in Denver? It was, it was difficult, in a way, for him to single-handedly do anything. I, I think part of the difference is he, 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 he had some all sorts of little secret support networks when he was fighting the, the um, con men. But with the Klan, it was different. But They were moving even more fast as he was. So he did, couldn't count on the police, couldn't count on the courts. There were judges who were Klansmen. Um, and he was not successful in stopping them from taking over the state in the 1924 election. But he did manage to do other things. He, he managed to keep some judges on the bench who were not Klansmen, which he thought was critical. He thwarted their attempts to pack a grand jury with Klansmen and indict whoever they please. And ultimately, he did some things as he was leaving office that I think helped contribute to the Klan's rapid downfall after it took power. Van Size comes across as this really admirable character. He's willing to fight power without hesitation. In your mind, when you were writing this book, how does he compare to public figures today, politicians? Well, yes. I mean, there were all sorts of parallels that kept coming up. But to me, what was remarkable about this guy, he really believed in the Constitution. He put his loyalty to the law and to what he saw as the principles of the country well ahead of any party loyalty, ahead of any ideology. And that was really what he was about. I mean, in many ways, the Klan courted him. The Klan thought, this guy, he's a wasp, he's a, you know, he's a conservative, he's a Republican. He would make a good candidate for governor for us. They actually asked him to run for governor, and he declined. Um, because although he was conservative in all these things, I mean, he, he put his, what he thought was you know, the true principles of the country ahead of all the rest of this. And that was, that was I think, his guiding light. He was incorruptible. I was wondering while reading the book if it's tough not to sort of idealize a character uh, when your book 
really centers around the person? I think that's a great question. I struggled a bit with some of the more less flattering aspects of Van Size, but I didn't want him to be a superhero. I didn't want him to be, a, you know, a, a sort of figure of idolatry or something like that. And so you present him warts and all. And in his case, I mean, he had his own hardline views about immigration, which, again, is why the Klan was trying to recruit him when they weren't trying to destroy him. When you were writing the book, uh, were you thinking about any comparisons um, that you can draw from the America of then and now? Um, you know, anything that resonated with you? Well, there's a lot that I struck, that struck me, and, I, and readers are telling me they're sort of seeing the parallels, too. I wasn't trying to be too uh, simplistic about them, but America 20, you know, 100 years ago, there was this, there was this incredible sense of disruption. The 20s was a very disruptive time. There was a sense of polarization. There were a lot of technological changes. There was a lot of inflation and people were struggling on different ways and looking for people to blame for various things that were happening in the country. And these extremist movements move towards the mainstream in situations like this. They dilute their message a little bit. They sometimes, I think, con their own followers. And I think there's something to be learned by looking at what the Klan did, the promises it made, the kinds of uh, people that were attracted to it, and then just as quickly became disenchanted with it. Later in life, Van Size was very concerned about his legacy. What bothered him about it? Well, I think it was clear that uh, he was not—he was not really <clears throat> accepted after he left the DA's office. That he was shunned in certain places, both socially and in certain legal circles. And I think some of that is that he was a living reminder of this time when he stood up to the Klan. There were other people fighting the Klan, but they were in the minority in some ways, and they were just—they were. It's—it's it's difficult to go back and think about how embarrassing it must have been to have him still active in politics or, you know, very prominent in the bar when so many other of these people had got their start with the Klan. Uh, so, I mean, for many years, I think he was sort of persona non grata. He, st he had some feuds with other prominent Denver people, and I think that played a part as well that was not Klan related. How did the Justice Center complex in Denver come to be named after him? I know there were a lot of contenders. Yes, and initially, uh, when they got down to the finalists, they were not going to name it after Van Size, and I think the city council stepped in because there were some ardent supporters of the idea that this guy should be remembered. So the debate went on for a little while, and I think people discovered more about what he stood for and that it was probably a good idea and even maybe a sense of poetic justice in naming the jail after him because of what he had done with the con men and improvising a jail in the church. Um, so that is some recognition many years after his death. Alan, thanks so much. Thank you. Author Alan Prendergast talking about his new book, Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption, and the Klan. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News. Every person has a story. But sometimes those stories are lost, ignored, or drowned out. That's why CPR News and Denver 7 have teamed up to bring you stories of people in underserved communities on Real Talk. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Micah Smith. Get unique, in-depth stories from those not often heard from on the news. Real people. Real voices. Real talk. Fridays at 3.30 and Mondays at 6.30 here on CPR News and KRCC.
When you visit the Denver Museum of Nature and Science as a member of the general public, you get to see fossils, gems, and animals from around the world. But there is plenty more at the museum that the public does not often get to see. CPR's May Ortega takes us down below into the museum's archives. Let's begin our tour in an elevator toward the back of the museum's lobby. You need to swipe a special access card to get where we're going, three stories underground. The museum has a total of 4.3 million specimens, and the lion's share are hidden away in these archives. You can find artifacts from Africa, fossils from France, and animals from right here in Colorado. They are all taxidermied, of course. Today, we'll explore the zoology wing of the archives. Let's meet the very first specimens the museum welcomed into its collection. And these are bison from South Park, and in particular, Kenosha Mountains Lost Park. That's John Demboski. He's a curator of vertebrate zoology at the museum. And we have five, well, four bison, I should say, from that area from 1872. Meet specimens one, two, three, and five. Yes, there is no specimen number four. We'll get to that in a bit. Every single thing in the museum's collection has its own number. So how did these bison get these numbers? These were part of a founding collection for the museum. There were three founding collections back in 1900. The first bison you see when you approach the small herd is specimen number two. He's hard to miss. He is the biggest taxidermied animal in the room, and that makes him a bit imposing, standing proudly on all fours, mounted on a slab with wheels. But even then, he's hard to move. This thing has a wooden frame. Our understanding, it still has a skull in it, so that adds some weight. But it's extremely heavy. We don't like to move it. We've moved it a couple times, and it's scary. While this bison herd is native to Colorado, it actually ceased to exist here in the 19th century. There is a bison herd near I-70 west of Evergreen, but they're not native. Those were actually seeded from a, a remnant population up in Yellowstone in uh, like 1914. Meanwhile, at the museum, there's a bit of a mystery. Where is bison number four? The museum was incorporated in 1900, but didn't have a building until 1908. In that time, they decided not to keep everything, so some of the material disappeared or was probably thrown out. And I don't have an explanation for where that is. So it could be in a school, a store, maybe even your basement. As for the rest of this small herd, it's found its place near a giant, possibly radioactive clam. Taking a step back from the bison, when you look up to your right, you'll see it. Each half of this clam's shell is at least three feet wide, and it stands at two feet tall. It even has smaller shells attached to it on the outside. Paula Cushing is the museum's curator of invertebrate zoology. We were lucky enough to get this giant clam from the Colorado School of Mines. This creature was present and possibly alive in the Marshall Islands between Hawaii and the Philippines, where the U.S. government dropped a nuclear bomb in the 1940s. A scientist brought the clam to the U.S. after that first test, and it was donated to the museum in 2017. Now, I know what you're wondering. Is this thing radioactive? We went over there with a Geiger counter because <laughs> we, we knew that there was this connection. So it, using a Geiger counter, it's not hot. 
One day, a researcher with Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico learned about this mammoth-sized mollusk. His name was Siler Conrad. And Siler and his team were doing a study of the radionucleotides that may have been deposited in organisms during the nuclear testing. So he reached out to me and he said, yeah, no. I happen to see that you have this giant clam. Can we sample it? And I said, why, sure you can. Cushing drilled into the shell and shipped the samples to the labs a few years ago. So if Cushing didn't find any radiation, why research it further? Siler said that their techniques are a lot more sensitive. And so, you know, as the animal's growing and it's exposed to to the nuclear test, the radionucleotides can be deposited in inner layers of it. So is this clam radioactive? Well, we still don't know. The pandemic kind of delayed things. They don't have results yet, but they're still working on it. It's still an ongoing study. So we're really excited to see what he finds out. In the meantime, that giant clam will keep hanging out with those taxidermied bison and some pristine whale parts. Just a couple of feet below the clam sits a long, thick strip of what looks like dense broom bristles. It's called baleen, and it helps certain species of whales eat. Here's Domboski again. It's like a filter, so they take in a big gulp of water, and that gulp of water is small fish, krill, crustaceans. Then the whale closes its mouth and pushes out all the water. And the baleen acts as a filter and keeps all that food in their mouth. Because fin whales are so big, they do this several times a day, eating up to two tons. But that's not the end of our tour. Let's head back upstairs for a second. When you enter the museum and look up in the lobby, you'll see a real skeleton hanging from the ceiling. A lot of people think it's a dinosaur. It's actually world's second largest living mammal. That mammal is actually a fin whale, the very same whale that once used the baleen in the archives to filter its food. This whale likely lived off the coast of California, and after it died, a Colorado man bought it in the late 1800s. The whale parts were shipped over by train, and the museum acquired it all in 1977. Now, back to the baleen. With animal parts this old, you have to wonder. Does it smell? No, you can come over. Sure. <laughs> I don't smell it. Maybe I'm used to it now. I don't smell anything. No, I don't no. smell anything. <laughs> Great. So why keep the whale skeleton or its baleen? The same reason the museum keeps all of its millions of specimens. Domboski says it's to better understand our planet's biodiversity. For research, for education, for artistic purposes, we have a a big focus on kind of the region, Southern Rockies, Great Plains, Front Range. Here's a record here from about the 1870s to the present. And if all goes according to plan, you could one day see not only this baleen, but the giant clam and the herd of bison for yourself. The museum hopes to start offering tours of its archives later this year. From Three Floors Underground, I'm May Ortega, CPR News. You may see lots of pictures of the bison, the giant clam, and the whale baleen at denverite.com. And we also have links to those pictures at CPR.org.
That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.